2: The first degree. 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 The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper.
1: You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. And you know what? I would yeah. actually argue that it was climactic because of the feverish ending to it. And of course, hearing the details after the fact, right? That was when we learned what was happening.
2: Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Viannick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. And just so you all know, today is part two of our O'Connell Funeral Home murders episode. If you haven't listened to part one, you're going to be very, very freaking confused. So go back and listen to it. If you're on Patreon right now, you're hearing this immediately, but all of our normal first degree listeners are hearing this for week two, but we are happy regardless to have you with us.
0: Yes. Thank you for sticking with us. This is a really important, profound story. And, uh, we are so excited to have drew with us again to help us see it through.
2: So before we start, of course, we got to go through the day really, really quick. Today is Wednesday, April 19th, and it is National Banana Day, which
0: I like. Honestly, I eat a banana every morning in my protein shake.
2: Mm. One of our
0: best friends, her name's Anna. I've only called her banana for 15 <laughs> yeah. years. I mean, it's a
2: word I say all the time. I love this. I love this fruit. I also do love a banana. Bananas and peanut butter, nothing better. Mm. It is also National Garlic Day, my mortal enemy, and everybody else's favorite thing in the world. I love garlic. It goes in everything I make. It's so confusing
0: Ugh. that you hate garlic. I hate it so it much. Adds so much robustness to food. No, no, nope,
2: not for me. Okay, it's also National Rice Ball Day. So you Ooh, know, lots of love food a days. rice ball. I know. I'm really an Italian
0: great. delicacy.
2: Mm-mm-mm. Absolutely, but we're going to get into the story. There's lots to uh, talk about today. So that's enough of that. So let's turn on the lights
0: and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. you all know, last week's story ended with a mystery. In 2002, a funeral director and his intern were murdered at work in broad daylight. And then the city of Hudson, at this point when this murder happened, hadn't seen a murder since 1978. So naturally, everyone is paying attention, looking very closely at this investigation. These families in this community were devastated. And mourners turned out in droves to pay their respects to each of them. And no one could have. Ever anticipate where this investigation was going to go and who would end up being the linchpin, unlocking the truth about this crime
2: that two years later had all but gone cold. The unsolved aspect of this case was haunting and palpable and continued to loom over the entire community. These guys, they had no enemies and they were upstanding community members. There really was nothing that onlookers could do except for prey. And perhaps just leave it in God's hands. Ironically, St. Patrick's Church would eventually emerge as a significant focal point of this case for the new investigators that were assigned to it, adding another little wrinkle of irony. Drew, our first degree who you met last week, had a front row seat to the story as it all unfolded, and he's here with us today for the conclusion of this two part episode. Like we demonstrated last week, Drew has unique insight into the case for several
0: reasons. For one, he was friends with James Ellison and Drew's dad worked in the funeral business with Dan O'Connell. And Drew attended the funeral services for both victims. And in the two years since the murders had occurred in Hudson, everyone, including Drew, had all but given up hope that the double murder would ever be solved.
1: Everything was cold. It just felt like eons. And this was years later, but it still goes back to the same, you know, feeling, I think, the idea of the unknown. There was just nothing and of course when that happens and there's continues to be nothing every you know day every week from there on becomes just a little harder to stomach the type of people they were the, the type of circumstance the funeral home you know the motivation factors type of person this was it just all feeds into that
0: the mystery and confusion surrounding this case and the identity of the phantom who murdered these two men persisted until the day it didn't news spread that the former St. Patrick's Church pastor, Father Ryan Erickson, had been found dead in the rectory of the new church he'd been assigned to. Father Erickson, the same one we've talked about previously, the gun-toting, beer-drinking, man's man of a priest who loved to hunt and fish. Yep, the same Father Erickson that read scripture at the funeral of Dan O'Connell, the same Father Erickson who on the day of the murders, went to the O'Connell home to comfort Dan's wife, Jenny. So why did he take his own life? What
2: happened to him? So what is going on? And what does the death of Father Erickson have to do with the murders of Dan O'Connell and James Ellison? Well, you know the drill. We gotta go back.
0: So now we're taking you to the spring of 2004, two years after the murders, when two Hudson detectives... Jeff Knopps, and Sean Petty began reinvestigating the O'Connell Funeral Home case. And the plan was to re-interview everyone, look at everything again, retest evidence, go over and pour over every shred of information connected to this case. And the unsolved double slaying was certainly a priority. Crime waits for no one. But other cases kept appearing on their desks. And ironically, It was a totally different type of case that at first seemed completely unrelated that would bring these two detectives to go looking for Father Erickson at St. Patrick's Catholic Church Rectory.
2: And sadly, the type of case that they wanted to speak with Father Erickson about is not going to surprise you. The investigation was spurred by a complaint made by a 20-year-old man who we're going to call Dylan, and this is not his real name. So according to Dylan, when he was a teen, he spent a great deal of time at St. Patrick's Church with Father Erickson. In fact, at the time, the boy spent every other weekend with him at the rectory. And now as an adult, Dylan decided to finally come forward about the abuse that he suffered at the hands of Father Erickson. Dylan said that on more than one occasion, Father Erickson gave him and his friends alcohol and more than once sexually abused him. Accusations connected to the Catholic Church are far from where. We hear about them all the time, but this doesn't make them any less disturbing. And it doesn't make the fact that Father Erickson was being accused of something like this any less horrifying. But at this point, from the perspective of these two
0: detectives, these are just accusations. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven guilty, right? I mean, sure, Father Erickson was eccentric as far as priests go. He collected guns. He loved to drink. He wore a gun under his robe. He was impassioned about Catholicism. He cried during services. He screamed during his sermons. He was divisive. He was intense.
1: He liked to drink. I guess it was downplayed a little bit. you know. And he loved his guns, which, I mean, everybody in Western Wisconsin, in America, let's be honest, loves the romanticization of guns. It kind of goes all together.
0: Father Erickson raged on the subjects of mortal sin, sex, abstinence, masturbation, abortion, you name it, he was fervent about it. He demanded action against gay sex, calling public opposition to such sins as a Catholic's religious obligation to combat. Yeah, everyone, I roll, he was one of those, the worst. So the question was, was Father Erickson a dangerous pedophile with a messiah complex Or was he an uber-conservative Catholic priest who's misunderstood by people like me? Well, let's go back one more time and find out.
2: Ryan Erickson grew up in Campbellsport, Wisconsin, after his dad was transferred out of the area because of his job, which forced them to move. And as a result, young Ryan went to live with a priest named Reverend Michael Morin so that he could finish high school with his peers. He lived with the Reverend for 18 months, and it was during his time with Reverend Morin that Ryan began to form very strong religious beliefs. He became impassioned, opinionated, and obsessed. And
0: while Ryan was in high school, from all appearances, he seemed relatively normal. He had friends, he was on the wrestling team. But then in 1991, we have record of some disturbing behavior that he began to exhibit. A high school wrestling teammate would later say that Erickson tried to sexually assault him when they were both 15 years old. And according to this victim, they were both drinking alcohol. They were hanging out. It was supposed to be just a chill hang sesh when at some point a pornographic movie was turned on. But then the teens who were together at this point fall asleep. And the boy claims to have woken up to Erickson grabbing
2: his genitals, which is shocking, right? And Erickson graduated from high school in 1992, and having decided to follow the path to becoming a man of the cloth, he enrolled in seminary at St. Paul's in Winona, Wisconsin. And if you don't know, seminary is essentially a specialized school where one studies theology. It's an independent theological institution that sees its primary mission as the training of men and women for the ordained ministry. Most seminaries are affiliated with a particular denomination, and that was the case here. Father Erickson attended a Catholic seminary. So maybe it's a surprise, maybe it's not a surprise, but more issues with
0: budding priest Ryan Erickson arose while he was getting his seminary training in 1994 is when new allegations emerged. A fellow seminary student claimed that he'd woken up in his bed with Ryan Erickson next to him. And this sleeping person basically said that he was making advances against him or towards him. I don't actually know the verbiage, but Ryan Erickson was making sexual advances. He was in his bed and they were not welcomed. So this student complained to the higher ups. And when they confronted Erickson about the story, Erickson denied it. And he tried to pass the whole situation off as like a mistake, a communication, a misunderstanding. I accidentally ended up in that bed. Who knows what he said, but whatever. Luckily, and this is actually refreshing, the seminary actually took the allegations very seriously and launched an investigation into Ryan Erickson that lasted about four months. I mean, I'm surprised by them taking that, it that seriously, given everything else we've seen, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. It was like, oh, okay, four months investigation. That's a big deal.
2: I know. Usually it's like, mm, just sweep, mm, it under, sweep it under the rug. Who cares? Yeah, yeah him somewhere else. So once this investigation started, Father Erickson was immediately removed from his apostolic work. He was made to undergo a mandatory psych evaluation. And during the testing, Erickson admitted that at the age of six years old, he had had sexual contact with his four-year-old male cousin. The doctor believed that Erickson's psychosexual history was within the normal limits. And the doctor who conducted the testing ultimately determined that Erickson was heterosexual. Yes. And I I guess that like a doctor determining that would only be applicable
0: if a Catholic institution is ordering the testing, like they, they
2: care if the priest is heterosexual or not. Yeah. Also something that a doctor can't decide. Yeah,
0: exactly. And I don't, I'm also like a doctor has never been like, check her box for sexuality. Like you can't tell physically or so. Yeah. It's just an interesting note. You know, I think it is, but other findings included this. It's clear that he is not a sexual predator, but they also noted that Erickson, quote, needed to grow in maturity, self-esteem, and personal insight. Don't we all, though, at that age? He would have been in his 20s, certainly. And finally, here are the cliff notes from the doctor's findings regarding the allegations that prompted the investigation in the first place, right? His seminary peer making complaint that he was in his bed when he woke up. So he said, quote, the allegations of inappropriate sexual behavior do not appear to be significant in the context of this gentleman's overall psychological makeup. He does not appear to be predatory or exploitive in his overall orientation and does not seem to be a high risk for acting in a sexually aggressive or manipulative manner in the future. The alleged sexual misconduct behaviors he described to us appear to be benign. I mean, he is the expert. He's the
2: doctor. So... Got to go with that, I guess, right? Oh, yeah. So ultimately, Erickson was allowed to finish his seminary studies and was recommended to be ordained as a full-blown Catholic priest. They believe that Erickson, he really had what it took. And that's saying a lot because the Catholic Church demands a lot from anybody in the priesthood. So here's a quick little recap. The common sense stuff, like having compassion and common sense, wanting to serve and help people, et cetera, et cetera. But the big ones are as follows. A vow of celibacy is required, we all know that, along with vows of poverty and obedience. And some priests even take a special fourth vow, often related to their community, such as a vow of stability to stay in one place or even a vow of silence. I want to talk about this real quick, just riff a little bit.
0: We're asking so much of these men to live in poverty, to never have a sexual encounter, yeah, and to be... Basically submissive to God. And I have empathy because I think it's an impossible ask. I really do. Right. Everybody has dreams of a thing, a vacation they want to take or an item they want. Even this guy, Father Erickson, a gun he wants. Like you're not really allowed to have the things you want. You're not allowed to explore human sexuality. I think it's a losing, it's a losing role for these men. And I I empathize with that. Yeah. Cause I think it's impossible. Like I don't know how. And, and I have a lot of Catholic friends, and this is not about that. I just think the demands on these men, even for those who stick to these vows, I think they're suffering.
2: It is. I mean, it's just not realistic as a human to be able to live within those restraints and not have, you know, like, and be happy with slip it. Up. Like either slip yeah. up or live any sort of full life. Right. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre and not very outdated, really.
0: Well, it's like you're testing their primal instincts for as long as they're alive. Like you want them to fight against every human instinct they
1: have for
0: as long as they live. And, you know, humans ebb and flow in their (laughs) ability to commit to anything. Like it's just you're setting them up for failure, I think. I I agree. So even after he was ordained, Father Erickson arrived at St. Patrick's Church in Hudson at just 31 years old that's pretty young for a priest. I see priests as like 80-year-old plus men. Yeah. (laughs) I know that's wrong. But when I heard he was a 31-year-old priest, I was like, wait, like you can be a priest at 30? Yeah. Right? Yes. And so when he arrived at 31 at St. Patrick's Church in Hudson is when he crossed paths for the first time with funeral director Dan O'Connell. And here's where the suicide of the beloved priest – by some, at least, and Dan O'Connell intersect. And here's where our story is really going to start to make sense. So, the O'Connell funeral home was among the most prominent in the area, as was St. Patrick's Church as it came to churches. So, these two were seeing each other very frequently for business reasons, even if Dan hadn't been a parishioner there. They were scheduling and planning, you know, funeral services at Dan O'Connell's funeral home. And services to be read within the church and there was a lot of working together going on it's actually said that dan o'connell and father erickson would typically drive together from the church to the burial site and then to the o'connell funeral home where there would be a reception so these two were in
2: quite constant contact Right. And we've alluded to this previously, but Father Erickson, he was kind of fanatical. He screamed, he cried, he spoke Latin, and he screamed for the condemnation of all sins. And the thing was, St. Patrick's Church was never really known for this kind of ultra-conservative, fanatical Catholicism. Like, it just wasn't, and it made a lot of people really uncomfortable. And the more that Erickson leaned into this kind of style of preaching, the more fervent certain followers of his became and the more fractured the church became. Right.
0: And I read this incredible article about the state of the church at the time he was there. And apparently you could tell which parishioners bought into Father Erickson's rhetoric because they were always kneeling during the consecration. And apparently that was something that had never happened before. And you could tell the difference between people who liked him and hated him based on who was kneeling and standing. And I was like, that's such an interesting visual right? Those standing were just not comfortable with the whole situation. But this church had never really experienced a fracture like this before. So like he was divisive. And I know we sprinkled that in, but like you're seeing those tangible results here with this information, right? Mm -hmm. So according to a lot of reporting sources, Dan O'Connell, he was a Catholic like you know, my friends growing up were Catholics. They were Catholic. They were baptized. They went. But he wasn't the guy who was going to be speaking in tongues under Father Erickson. It just wasn't going to happen. So we're unclear whether these, like, impassioned over-the-top displays put on by Father Erickson during his sermons was off-putting to him or not. But I'm going to assume it was. I'm going to assume he was a stander just based on everything else we know so far. Yeah. But regardless, Dan remained very tightly engaged with the St. Patrick's Church community. Jack mentioned this in the last episode. They planned this big spaghetti dinner following 9-11. And Father Erickson worked on that with them. You know, he was standing right there. So they were working shoulder to shoulder this entire time. Whether he was devoutly religious or not, Dan was committed to the community services provided by this church.
2: Right. And while all this was going on, it would later be revealed that Father Erickson never really got his, and we're going to call them abusive urges, under control. He would groom prepubescent and teen boys by offering them alcohol and by trying to buddy up to them by taking them out to shoot guns and go fishing. He also had boys staying with him on weekends at times. Like, it's just so fucking inappropriate. And he would get them drunk and take shots with them. And it's just disgusting, really, to think about.
0: And I do wonder if this is like a religious thing. Like it's always been okay to like leave a child with nuns or leave a child with this religious
2: figure. Well, that's and why th- they all take advantage of it. Like that's, it's yeah. literally the perfect situation of somebody thinking that they can trust somebody around their children.
0: A hundred percent. Because if the adult in situation, the situation, the parent of the child had a positive religious experience, they they honestly think these people are saints. They're like a priest would never oh, do yeah. any harm yeah, because they hadn't experienced any harm by one. But like, there's a bad apple in every fucking bunch, guys.
2: Lots of bad apples. <laughs>
0: yeah. But like, it's because of the deprivation priests experience. Like, I truly believe Catholic clergy experience most of this because they're supposed to detach themselves from
2: being a human and that's not going to work. I mean, yes. But then also like any point of power that you're going to put an adult in with kids around too. It's just like, it breeds that behavior.
0: If you're a straight up pedophile, it can also happen. (laughs) Like it's not just depriving, but I mean, especially so like regular pedophiles aren't even deprived and they still do it. So imagine a man who has never had a sexual experience. Like they're teeming with this fucking energy they don't know what to do with.
2: Yeah, it's disgusting.
0: It's disgusting, and it's it's sad and weird. Either way, in February of 2002, following the murders of Dan O'Connell and James Ellison, it was reported, and now we're going back to when the investigation was happening, people said that Father Erickson's demeanor allegedly shifted drastically and quickly. And this is something the police are digging around about, right? They went to interview him. He was being weird. Let's Let's find out about this guy. So apparently after the murders, he became more erratic, and he was frustrating, and more and more contention was building at the church. It was becoming more and more divided. But luckily, it wouldn't matter for the people of Hudson for very long, because he was eventually pretty quickly transferred away from Hudson to St. Mary's Church shortly thereafter, a neighboring town, a neighboring county. So by 2004, when these detectives do show up to St. Patrick's Church to interview Father Erickson about these sexual abuse allegations he's not there he'd already long been gone and beyond that once they started digging they found that he had a long history of abusing boys and a very sketchy reputation in the catholic community at the very best
2: so Detective Knops and Petty went to speak with Father Erickson in November of 2004. And while they were technically there investigating sexual assault allegations against the priests, we told you that these guys were also working the unsolved funeral home murders case as well. And apparently everybody on the Hudson Police Force made it a point to ask anybody that they came into contact with or they questioned or they took into custody whether they knew of or had heard anything about the O'Connell murders. And they were aware that Father Erickson had known, worked with, and spoke at the funeral of Dan O'Connell. So after they were done questioning Father Erickson about the sexual abuse allegations, the subject of the murders organically just came up into conversation. And the conversation took place in the rectory of his new church. Right.
0: And they just asked like a throwaway statement like, Hey, you heard anything about the O'Connell murders? The O'Connell Funeral home murders? Whatever. They weren't expecting much, right? And they were not prepared for the strange things that would subsequently come out of this guy's mouth. So the priest, when questioned, it's like he'd been waiting to be asked this his entire life because he had theories, some surprising ones. Mainly, he blamed the mafia. I didn't know there was a mafia in Wisconsin, especially Hudson, but (laughs) according to this priest, there was. And he suggested that the O'Connell family had mafia ties. And that was a new one for police. But either way, when asked where he was on the day the murders occurred between 1230 and 230, and remember that 911 call came in at 140, he couldn't account for where he was. Then Father Erickson started offering up details that he'd heard through the grapevine. He offered up that James Ellison had been found with his body going through a doorway and that Dan had been found sitting behind his desk. So the detectives already knew this. But it was a shock to hear it. Why? Because these details had never, ever been made
2: public and had been intentionally held back from being made public. And when asked who shared this information with him, he pointed to Dan's siblings, Mike and Kathy O'Connell, as the original source of the information. But once police tried to independently verify this at the source, Dan's siblings denied having any conversation with Father Erickson about the case at all. So why would anybody lie about that? It's not even clear whether Dan's own siblings even knew this info. And this interview with Father Erickson raised so many red flags that detectives immediately started digging into the priest, And they learned about his cachet of weapons. They learned that shortly after the murders occurred, Father Erickson got rid of his near new silver Buick, trading it in for a Lincoln Navigator. And this is super relevant because a silver sedan had been spotted by the crime scene by an eyewitness.
0: So the police probably didn't even know why this guy seemed so suspicious because why the fuck would this guy have any reason to kill two people at the local funeral home, right? Like, this is a very difficult case to solve because, like, this makes no sense. And they had no idea, but they were going to follow the trail anyway because they were following real evidence. And along the way, they dug up little tidbits of information which shed additional light on Father Erickson's character. Apparently, in this makes my blood boil. Apparently he had adopted a dog and he was known to be abusive to this dog. And apparently people witnessed this. When you live in a church rectory, that's like the living quarters at a Catholic church. So he adopted a dog, brought it into his living quarters and he was reportedly abusive to the dog. He smoked cigarettes, the father, and this poor dog started showing up, people seeing it with like cigarette burns on his ears. Like that's a fucked up, horrible thing to do. But no one like clocked it as particularly shady, mm-hmm. I guess, until hindsight.
2: Oh my god! Right? Like, why, why did you adopt the dog? <laughs> because he's a priest and he does the right thing, quote oh unquote. My god. So, on top of this, another young man comes forward with a very similar sexual abuse complaint against the priests. He said that on one occasion, he had seen the priest standing at a window overlooking the entrance to the church, and he was pointing a gun at members of the church that he disliked and pretended to shoot them. Like, that is insane. It's so insincere. Like,
0: the double life this dude is living if he's doing shit like that like that means you hate every parish like you hate parishioners enough where you're doing fake shooting motions at them when you're supposed to be a priest where you're supposed to like love and forgive all like this guy is so far from where he's supposed to be in terms of like his approach on humanity
2: well yeah and he's like he's like power tripping his way through the entire thing totally
0: I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's True Accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app. With audio companion and ability to download lessons offline.
2: and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No
0: prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash degree 50 to get 50% off.
2: So something else even more damning ends up coming to light. And it turns out that sometime after the detective's first interview with Father Erickson on November 11th, he had a conversation with a deacon at his current church, where he said, "quote I done it, and they're gonna catch me." So that doesn't sound that good. No. He had described Father Erickson's demeanor as really angry as he was speaking, and he was staring out the window through the duration of the entire conversation. So I don't know if he's kind of having a uh, little moment that he's like, "Oh shit, I'm I'm gonna get got." And I don't know. So, and the deacon, he, he's like hearing Father Erickson talk and he's obviously probably confused, like what the hell is going on? So he repeated what he said to his wife and a church secretary. Right. So all of this circumstantial evidence
0: is starting to paint kind of a disturbing picture of Father Erickson and also his possible connection to this double murder. So what isn't evident ...is why Father Erickson would ever do something like this. Why would he do something like this to these two men? What could it possibly be? And that became the focus of the detective's case. Like, we need to find a motive. Why would this priest just do this? So, again, the community of Hudson has no idea this is going on behind the scenes. As far as they know, it's been two years since the case is solved, right? But really, things are kind of moving behind the scenes. That The cops are, like, zeroing in on this guy. The never-before-released details that this priest shared with them ended up being enough for law enforcement to obtain a search warrant for the rectory in which he lived. So they were able to, you know, search his whole thing. They did so. They took computers. They took his clothes. They took personal items. And they took any document they could find. They were going to go over everything to see if anything suggested that this guy could be involved and maybe they could dig up a motive
2: right and one of these documents was a last will and testament along with a statement where he denied the murders and said the police will find no dna linking him to the crime however in the letter he does admit to being plagued since youth and giving in to lust and passion but this isn't all they found unsurprisingly they find child porn on his computer and police also found information in Father Erickson's emails, which alludes to a confrontation that occurred between Father Erickson and Dan O'Connell the day before the murder. So this is a big deal.
0: Really big. Like, this is the connection. Because, like, no one really knew how to put them together. Like, what's the motive? Yeah. And, like, beyond their business dealings, like, you're, you're doing the service. I'm hosting the funeral. Like, what could possibly... Yeah. But this is the connection they were looking for.
2: Right. So... Apparently, it had been a heated exchange where Dan had threatened to expose Father Erickson as a child sex abuser. They had made plans the following day to meet at the funeral home and finish this conversation. So it looks like Father Erickson went into this meeting and he had brought his gun with him.
1: I'm sure that it was a situation that Dan had found out something unsavory about mr erickson and dan confronted him about or in other words just somehow got out in the open you know between the two of them i believe is, is probably what happens and then pretty soon you have this you know big dish this big platter that now is stacked with things uh, about this guy you know it's that is the, that's the big first one right that's the, the thing that is probably the motivation well,
0: there we have it if i could do a clap i'm doing a clap a motive There it is. What you need for a good suspect is a solid motive, and there it is. So let's talk about means. These two men were shot, and this is a gun-toting, firearms-obsessed priest. Now, opportunity. This man has no alibi for the day in question. So the Hudson Police Department, they're fucking stoked. Everyone is devastated over the loss of these two men, and they're finally inching towards justice, right? This is... Huge, So they're thrilled. That's what's going on there. But back to the motive for just a second. So once the motive was, in fact, identified, there emerged another heartbreaking realization. This means that if Dan O'Connell had, in fact, been the target, it also means that James Ellison, a college student so close to graduation, close to proposing to his girlfriend, close to having his whole life ahead of him, was just a casualty of this crime. Being there at the wrong place at the wrong time—that is awful. That's gut wrenching, and awful. yeah, it's it's like the fucking worst in the universe. That is so unfair, right? So Father Erickson wanted Dan dead, but he couldn't leave any witnesses, and that's that's how James lost his life, which is disgusting.
2: That's horrible. And at this point, all of the puzzle pieces were now finally coming together in an extremely strong and prosecutable case against Father Erickson. And it really looked as though they were about to finally solve this case. And law enforcement was getting all of their ducks in a row to arrest and indict. And this was the biggest unsolved mystery in the region, and they could finally give answers to the families of James Ellison and Dan O'Connell. But this man of God isn't even decent enough to let them have just that. So two days after the search warrant was served to Father Erickson's rectory, a friend found him hanging in a hallway of the church prior to morning mass. He had taken his own life. So suicide is awful. Is it awful that he took his own life? Absolutely,
0: because he should have been prosecuted, right? But what's even more interesting and glaring to me is that, like, he's Catholic. Like, he yelled at everybody, like, don't masturbate. Abortion's awful don't mm-hmm. be gay, but, like, he's down for murder and suicide, which is totally not
2: okay. And child abuse and child sex abuse. Right. But, like, the, the hypocrisy, the cowardice, like,
0: it's like nothing I've ever seen.
2: Well, you know, the hypocrisy runs pretty strong within that community sometimes. And it's like, unfortunately, this, as a Fucking crazy as the story is, it's not that surprising because we do hear about stuff like this pretty often, and it's sad. It's
0: super. sad. It's devastating, but it's just shocking to hear that his way out, instead of doing anything in any any act of integrity, like no, nope, the- I'm going to double down and be the worst Catholic priest there ever was.
2: Yeah, the biggest coward of all time. That's
0: right.
1: He felt them breathing down his neck because he knew some details about the case that were not public information. And I think he had, like, tried to pass it off as church gossip.
2: After discovering his body, the police also found a series of letters that Father Erickson had intentionally left behind. In them, he confesses to doing some terrible things that he needs forgiveness for, but he again denies committing those murders.
0: The news that Father Erickson's suicide was prompted by becoming the main suspect in the most notorious double slang in this region... I bet you can imagine it hit this community like a fucking grenade. Everyone had found this out all at once. Everyone was traumatized and no one could believe it. How could this be true? Many of the people in this community attended the funeral of Dan O'Connell, where this man, Father Erickson did the service and spoke all these biblical verses. I mean, 5,000 people attended. This is a 13,000 person community. Like, Imagine the spiritual betrayal everybody is feeling, right? Remember, this is the same man who went to Dan O'Connell's house the day of the murders to comfort his wife, okay? Knowing he had killed this man. This is some crazy shit. This is a level of sociopathy that, like, I didn't know people could really be capable of. Back to our first degree, Drew, he attended the funeral. He saw Father Erickson, deliver these words over the body of the man that he killed. Like it's a surreal situation and drew himself. He's still in disbelief over it.
1: Dan's funeral was at the Catholic church that he presided over and he was there presiding over his funeral. He was up front like on the pulpit area presiding over Dan's funeral as if Nothing was I remember that that's burned into my mind of like, of course, again, nobody knows anything at that point. But I had to think back and be like, oh, my gosh, he is there pretending like that must have been crazy. And apparently he gave a real solemn eulogy. And and of course, I mean, I'm not expecting any fireworks or anything like that, but just incredible. The dissociation uh, that was going on in his brain to be able to, to do that
0: trying to get into the head of this man is impossible. And like we said, standing in front of people, looking into the eyes of Dan's crying wife, sociopath, you know, it's just, it's unfathomable to someone like me or Jack. And if this is relatable to you, seek help. Right. But it's devastating and it would rattle me. I mean, this is a traumatizing thing to witness. I think.
1: There's there's so much honor in those things, I think, to to most, most anybody. But then you get a little mental illness thrown in there and then all of a sudden it's a snowball effect like it was in his case. So And, and how ballsy.
2: Drew also attended the funeral of his friend James Ellison, another life that was snuffed out by this psychotic priest. This guy was pretending to be a pious religious leader while he was molesting kids and murdering innocent people to cover up his misdeeds. It's literally the worst thing that a human could ever
1: do. That's part of the emotion spectrum you feel. You know, you definitely feel anger and, and uh, along with the sadness just because of the incredible breathtaking steps that were, were taken to, uh, again, secure his delusion.
0: And as we talked for this interview, Drew made an excellent point. One lie so quickly snowballs into many. If any of you ever told a little lie, like you have to tell other lies to support that lie. And it, it does become kind of a juggling act, right? And it sounds like Father Erickson had to compartmentalize his true self from the person he was pretending to be. And imagine the amount of lies in myths, truths he was juggling, right? But this is how he was able to do something like kill a man and then eulogize him at his own funeral in front of thousands of people.
1: It's an image upkeep, you know, if you're already selling, you know, lies, (laughs) you got to you got to keep it up. You know, it's snake oil salesman stuff. You can't possibly fathom, you know, turning heel and coming clean about something so horrendous. It's too much to bear, I'm sure, in his in his mind or it's it's so hard to bear that it's not, it's not a truth, right? This is, what, this is what mental illness is.
0: And while the answer as to who murdered Dan and James seemed to be more or less answered, and even though the likely killer was no longer alive, the lack of real justice in this case was felt in a significant way. It was felt viscerally. It was a sorrow-filled time, especially for those who were dealing with a faith-related
2: existential crisis of Father Erickson's betrayals. So, because they couldn't physically prosecute Father Erickson since he was dead, the district attorney's office decided to do the next best thing. The year after Erickson's suicide in 2005, St. Croix County Court held a hearing to determine with a judge whether or not there was enough evidence to conclude on the record that Erickson had, in fact, committed these murders. This type of hearing is what's called a John Doe hearing, and they're held when the accused can't physically be present, like in this case. All the evidence was recounted, shown, and displayed. All relevant witnesses testified.
0: And character witnesses revealed, quote-unquote, Father Erickson, as what he truly was. A vile, lying, sociopathic, child-abusing, murderous, animal-hurting, drunk, blasphemer, who betrayed the trust and rocked the belief system of an entire community. The judge presiding over the hearing would ultimately rule that Ryan Erickson was, in fact, responsible
2: for these slayings. And here is his direct quote. It's crazy. He says, this is one of the strongest cases of circumstantial evidence I have ever seen. On a scale of 1 to 10, based on the strength of the evidence presented, I give it a 10. And with
0: his ruling, this case was considered closed. And now there are, quote unquote, answers. But the pain Disbelief, the shock, and the coarse, shaking realities about the levels of evil human beings are capable of have not faded from the view of those impacted by the loss of James and Dan O'Connell. Hiding behind a Catholic ordainment to perpetuate acts of sexual abuse against children and commit a double murder while chastising church parishioners about masturbation and premarital sex is about as fucking low as you can get and as big of a mindfuck as you can fathom. So, there was surely a great deal of collateral damage. And the ripple effects, we couldn't even begin to speculate as to
2: how far they reach. Contrastingly, there are still many, many Father Erickson supporters out there. I'm sure you're not surprised. You know, you know the type. Those who think that the sexual abuse allegations are false. Those who think that he was framed by the cops. And in fact, one of his most devoted followers created a website in his memory called fatherryanerickson.com. Thankfully, it's now defunct but we'll let you decide for yourselves how seriously to take those assertions.
1: Kind of being cloaked in the Catholic religion, he was an unorthodox type of deliverer of the Catholic faith in his in his sermons, and, and it certainly took notice for people. You know, parishioners, you know, still, they couldn't believe it and they stuck by him, you know, and didn't believe uh, that it was something he did.
0: Suddenly, the persona that Father Erickson had crafted made sense. He wouldn't be a boring priest. He was going to be a gun-toting priest. He was going to be a cool priest. And he was going to get drunk with parishioners. And he was going to exercise a firm, disciplined hand. He was going to be the most devout priest at St. Patrick's Church. And now, the reason why made sense. This guy may have been dressing himself up in his crisp, white vestments but he was the fucking devil. He had a gun underneath and he was hiding his true self from everyone. And you know what else? None of this needed to end this way. When I was talking to Drew, I suggested that the way this ended with Father Erickson's suicide, I called it anticlimactic because I thought the suicide was stealing justice from those who deserved it. I thought, you know, a trial airing out all of his misdeeds would be more climactic. Because I personally wanted this man to pay for what he did and live in the shame of what he did. But Drew kind of set me straight, which I appreciated.
1: And you know what? I would actually argue that it was climactic because of the feverish ending to it.
0: One thing's for sure. If anyone had noticed the mental illness that Father Erickson had clearly been suffering from for God knows how long, maybe this senseless tragedy could have been prevented.
1: You could talk all you want about mental health and this and that. You know, breaking down stigmas and and making sure you normalize, you know, people getting mental health help as if it's, you know, you go to the doctor for a regular checkup. But it's moments like these where it's just so important. And, I'm, you know, I, I think about that now in that lens. It's just like, you know, if this guy, this guy could have gotten some help, you know, who knows?
0: We'll never know what could have been, but what we do know is that Father Erickson betrayed everyone who relied on him for spiritual guidance. He betrayed the very God he swore that he served. He betrayed his own quote-unquote beliefs. He hammered parishioners about things like masturbation and clothing when he committed the worst mortal sins of all. And I can't think of a better way to describe this man than the devil and blasphemous.
2: Well, thank you so much to Drew and his wife, Allie, who told Drew about our show in the first place. We love you, Allie. Thank you. Love you, Allie. Allie's a listener and told her husband about
0: it. Drew was a delight. Love you both.
2: And if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell or your partner has a story to tell or somebody that you know has a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first dot com. No story is too small or insignificant. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all of the time. Join our Patreon. Like we said, there's so much bonus content for you over there. And stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed.
0: And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. This episode was written and researched by me. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Sources are the Bishop Accountability.org, the Star Tribune, the Leon J. Podols, Reverend Ryan Erickson case study, the Ladysmith News, Time Magazine, the Grand Fork Herald, NBC News, the Republican Eagle, and the Washington Post. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source.